Welcome to episode 16 of the Digital Fabrication Experiment, a podcast about all things CNC. I'm Winston Moy, and I'm joined by my hustling co-host Eddie Kramer. We're hobby machinists, and we'd like to bring you into our conversations about life in the shop and topics in making. Eddie, how was your not Super Bowl? Oh, it's been great. I've just been uh, shoveling snow here in my workshop at Delrin, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Yep, yep. It is uh, messy stuff. I'll, have to, I'll be spending the whole week saying, no, no, that's not dandruff, it's Delrin. <laughs> <laughs> it falls out of my hair and my clothes. Um, yeah, so I've been, uh, yeah, probably like you, I am actually don't pay much attention to stuff like Super Bowl. Um, so I use that time to kind of finish a commercial job I had this week, this month, I should say, but uh, really started in earnest on it this week. Got the first uh, first full order out and ready to ship tomorrow of the, the Delrin gears I've been posting about on Instagram. Yeah, that's an exciting milestone. It was interesting because the first, the first 10 that I made, I, I prototyped the fixture. You know, I basically had a two-station fixture and just modeled one of each station and was running like the first test parts I ran on that fixture and on the other, on the uh, Bantam tools machine purchase order came in and they wanted the customer wanted like the, it was for 50, 50 parts and they wanted the first 10 rush. So I was still working on the bigger fixtures, the 12 station fixtures. So I'm like, I had to crank out 10 on that one <laughs> dual fixture or, you know, two station fixture. I took a while, really motivated, motivated me to get the other fixtures finished. So today was really the first day that I ran everything on the, the two pallets. So I have like a first stop 12 station pallet on, on one of the Bantam machines. And then, uh, the flipped, you know, flip the part over, put it on the second machine and 12, 12 parts on there and finish it, you know, for 24 parts, I think like my interaction with the machines is maybe not even five minutes. Well, loading the, loading the pallets is probably closer to 10 minutes. And then, uh, right now it takes about, uh, I think it's, uh, almost, two hours to run 24 parts, you know, once it's, once it's kind of, once both pallets are loaded. Right. So the, the first 12, yeah, I got it. The first and the last one are solo. Sorry. How many tool changes, uh, for each operation on the more complex machining, it's on the first op and that's, uh, just did some optimization there. I think I'm down to three tools on that. I have to go look. Yeah. Cause I, I got rid of the chamfer mill and I got rid of the thread mill that I was using as a chamfer as a backside chamfer mill and replace those with the Harvey, uh, I'm trying to remember what they call it, a double angle shank tool. So they can basically cutter. Yeah. Yeah. At the right, at the correct 45 degrees is the thread mill is a 30 degree, right? Um, Mm -hmm. six degree to 30 degree each side. Yeah, exactly. Puts a 30 degree chamfer on. So, um, most of the time that doesn't matter right there would have been fine, but the, the drawing on the part actually had a couple of the chamfers called out at 45 degrees specifically. So, uh, I was using the chamfer mill to do those standard chamfer mill and then the thread mill, which was a tool change, right? To go get the underside chamfer, uh, in the axle bore, because that's where I was going to do the work holding when I flipped the part over. I basically just had a real simple clamp. Um, if anyone was paying attention on my early Instagram stuff, they kind of saw a complex, uh, expanding O-ring ID clamp, uh, which I ended up not having to use once I did the tooling change. Uh, cause now that chamfer is done and, on the bottom side is done in op one. Uh, that bore is free for clamping. I don't have to access it once I flip the part over. Now I just have a real, real simple 3D printed uh, retainer and bolt that holds the 
the gear in on the second op. Three tool or two tool changes, three tools on both both pallets right now. I think there was still room to get one more tool change out. I have to remember, I have to go back and look at my notes. Um, well, actually, no, I think I decided against it. If I, if I use the small tool for everything, like the roughing, then I could avoid a tool change, but I think the trade-off on machining time was just too much, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, right now I'm trying to get, um, you know, the two pallets don't run quite, like the runtime on the first pallet's longer, uh, about twice as long as the second op that happens on the uh, other machine. But once, um, but yeah, so the other tool optimization I'm, I have yet to make, uh, the thing that takes the longest is the gear teeth, like the actual, I'm using a small, uh, I think it's 0.025 inch diameter long reach stub to, to get inside and, and machine those profiles. That's scary small. Is it a 2D contour or an adaptive? Uh, so I do adaptive roughing and then I come back and do a 2D contour to bring it to final dimension with the same tool. The issue is, you know, the tool can, uh, the gear teeth are about just under five millimeters tall. That tool, it's a long reach stub, so it's really the flute length's only, it's just under two millimeters. I think it's like 1.9, it's in inches, but um, it's equivalent to 1.9 millimeters. So I have to actually make three passes around the part to get all the way to the bottom. Uh, what I really need is like a, a long reach tool of the same diameter that's basically you know, ideally it'd be right at five millimeters, right? And I can just do it all in one pass because I've got enough power. I'm not removing a lot of material. I could, I could do it full depth, but the tool can't reach. That's the problem. Mm. So yeah, I, I found uh, Harvey has something that's really close to what I need. The only issue is it's 2.5 inches and kind of the limit on the other mill is two inch overall length on tooling. If you go longer than that, uh, you can't use the automated tool probing, which I need tool height probing. Is it something where you could just take it to a grinder and just cut off the last half inch? Yeah, so there's three things I can do. One is, uh, you know, talk to Harvey and ask him if I can get a two-inch version of that tool or several of them. I'd probably buy 10 of them. Um, so that's one option. The other is um, the limitation on the probing is, I'm pretty sure it's a software limitation. It almost works with two and a half inch. Like it's... Uh, the way, like when the probing, basically the Z-axis comes down pretty quickly to get close to the, close to the table. And then it very, you know, once it gets the tooltip close, it slows down, right? And very, very gently approaches the table to touch off. Um, with the two and a half inch tool, it's still kind of in the faster descent rate and it crashes the tool into the table, right? So, um, yeah, but it's, I mean, like two millimeters like it hits like two millimeters before it would switch gears to the slow safe speed and where it could probe okay is this a uh, documented behavior or did you discover this on your own i can't remember it says don't use tooling longer than two or don't use it with automated probing i think there's a warning about it the older software actually had a, a solution for that basically you could kind of like the pocket and see if you couldn't use tool probing because your tool was too long there was a manual process so you could manually jog the table down and keep the collet loose and just drop the tool in the collet till it touches the table and then tighten up the collet. It's not as precise, right? Cause it's going to, as you tighten up the collet, it's going to shift a little bit in Z, but uh, that process is no longer supported in the latest software. So anyway, I'm, I'm talking to Bannon to see if, Hey, can we make this probing a little bit adjustable on the limits or is there, you know, either that or maybe to do the manual probing, bring that back or give me some way to do it. Um, 
so I can use the two and a half inch tool. If that doesn't work <laughs> and I can't get the tool ground off or whatever, um, the other option is uh, there's a Datron tool that's three millimeters long. It would at least, it would chop about a third of the time, machining time out if I use that. I'd have to make two passes with that tool instead of three on the tool I use now. But ideally I just machine the whole, the profile in, in one pass, one pass around the gear, right? That would be the most efficient, so. Yeah, so I'm gonna keep looking for a solution there. Uh, I think I've got some time before the next order comes in. I'm I'm good to go with what I have now. It's not taking too long. I'll just keep making them this way until I can find an, uh, more time to trim out of it, right? So that's kind of half the fun on something like this is just figuring out the most efficient way to do it. Mm -hmm. So are you sort of like feeling good at where you're at now? Um... Yeah, as of, you know, now that I've done a full run, I kind of know like my worst case and it's, very manageable, right? So like I said, it's probably all my like total commitment of time, which is starting with the, I have a 10, I mean, uh, two five foot bars of Delrin, right? That I go and trim down uh, to the working stock on a bandsaw. That's that's about 10 minutes worth of work to get, uh, you know, batch 50 ready. And then I spend another, uh, probably about 10 minutes on uh, the pocket NC, just facing that stock down to the exact height I want to load the pallet with. And loading the pallet takes about the same amount of time. I actually load both pallets takes me, uh, cause the double side tape on the first pallet takes about 10 minutes to set up the stock for that. And then the other pallet takes like two minutes to load cause it's all um, screwed in, it's real easy. So all that time plus the machine, you know, that's my time, right? That's time I'm having to be involved in the process, so to speak. And then the rest of it's, uh, basically robots take over and I come do the occasional tool change and, and, uh, that's like an hour and a half. Do you have to come in like halfway through and just do some vacuuming or any housekeeping? No, that's the other thing. So I wasn't sure about that until today till I ran the whole, the whole cycle. Um, now the roughing, there's plenty of room in the bottom of the machine for the, for the chips to kind of stay out of the, stay out of the vital areas. So yeah, I basically, I'll, when I do my first tool change on the op one, which is after the major roughing, I'll go in and vacuum. Uh, the only thing I have to remember to do is I have a little, um, a little access port machined in the pallets so that the tool probing or so the tool can reach the actual bed of the machine. Cause the pallet completely covers the table. Um, but I have to probe against a reference surface that's beneath the pallet. So I cut a little, I put a little channel or a little pocket in the fixture. Uh, so that the tool could reach down to the table, but I have to remember to vacuum chips out of that right before I probe. <laughs> so I have a little note to remind myself, you know, tool change, make sure the probe port's clear. Um, yeah, so this worked really good. So, uh, you know, there was a lot of the things I did on the pallets were like first time I've done them that way. They were all ideas, right? But none of it, it was proven. Um, so now I've kind of, I feel really good as of today, having been through the whole cycle and everything works, I have good parts. You know, there, I only had one failed part actually out of the 50 and that was because, um, I have to be careful when I load the pallet, especially the, the one with the double sided tape, make sure that all the stock is like pushed all the way down into the pocket. I had one that was kind of cocked at an angle. I didn't catch it. And so it got machined, you know, it, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't planar with the fixture. So it kind of messed up the part, but all the rest of them were good. You're shipping 50 of these, right? Um, 40, well, I shipped 10 already, like. Uh, I think last weekend and then yeah the other 40 go out tomorrow morning so doing the math 
it has to be divisible by 12. Do you just run full pallets until you uh, make your 50 and just keep the extras for the next uh, shipment? Or do you just run like... Yeah, so I ran an extra pallet this time. So I'll have like a, to grab the two that I need. Like Assuming they keep ordering in units of 50, um, which I don't know. They may, they may go up or may go down, depending on their how well the sales on their product go, right? But yeah, I just, I have like a little standby supply now to grab the other two out. And next time, you know, if those get low, next time I run a pallet, I'll just run an extra one. Nice. That's a, a pretty lean operation. I don't know if it's kind of a virtuous circle, but I pick up ideas from business and machining and, you know, Saunders YouTube channels and all the instant machinists uh, stuff that I see, even, you know, big machines, little machines, doesn't really matter. Those ideas are kind of universal. Um, and apply, you know, finding out that they, or at least not all of them, but a lot of them can be applied on the small desktop machines. And um, did you get the same kind of benefits, you know, scaled to, right to the speed of your machine and everything? But, but from a concept, right, they work. And, you know, both that applies to both work holding and, and I'd say process, you know, all that. Um, I would have never come up with the stuff on my own. It was all, <laughs> everything I did was kind of cribbed from something I saw on Instagram or, or YouTube or heard somebody talk about uh, does this at a much higher volume on much bigger machines. So but that is kind of the point, right? Because if you learn it for yourself, that means you screwed up and you had to endure some sort of hardship to learn this lesson by leveraging what other people have already shared. Uh, that That keeps us ahead. Yeah, I mean, if you're just watching my Instagram page, you probably, you know, it looks like oh, everything comes so easy to him, and it, and it does because someone else did all the hard work, right? <laughs> so uh, yeah, it's always the, it's always easy to be the second guy that tries an idea. <laughs> it's the guy that comes over there initially that's got the hard work, right? It has to make it work. And once you see it in action, and somebody can show you that it's doable, it's like to me, it's a lot easier to visualize how to do that yourself. So yeah, a lot of a lot of my stuff is. Um, you know, it's definitely not unique, or it's not an original idea with me, right? Stuff I, I saw somewhere else and just scaled down to apply, or to see if it applies in the desktop environment. And again, you know, I'm achieving my goal of uh, this being a learning process, these commercial jobs. <laughs> I thought you were going to say you're achieving your goal of slowly uh, banking up to a Daytron. <laughs> that too. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be a long haul, but <laughs> one gear at a time, right? Um, but yeah, that's... Uh, you know, definitely all this stuff is also in support of whatever direction I decide to grow my shop this year or next year. Um, still kind of on hold on what machine will be next year uh, for a big machine, right? So actually, I got an email from Tormach this week that said, well, two emails. One says uh, the MX line, which I'm interested in, is going to be delayed. Um, I think it's late 2019 now or mid to late 2019. What? That's much later than I thought. Yeah, actually, it was kind of weird because when they announced it at IMTS, uh, some of the guys that were there, some of our listeners or followers um, mentioned that they, well, it may have even been JPL Richard. Somebody sent me the flyer. Like, that was kind of where uh, Tormach officially announced it, the MX line. And I think they were showing, I don't know if they had the machines there, but they were showing some specs on it for the first time. And uh, the date that was floating around then was late 2019. Which I was kind of like, oh, that's a long way away. This was like, no, when was when was IMTS? Then it was like September, September, I think. Yeah, 2018. And then uh, I kind of started following Tor Tormach's uh, press releases on it, and it was actually, I think it was late 2018, is what they were targeting. 
So yeah, so now it's really late 20, mid to late 2019. Um, yeah, and the other email they sent right after that was, hey, guess what? Another price increase is coming in March. <laughs> so, oh boy. Yeah. Um, so I don't know how that affects, I mean, that, I don't think they've even released pricing on the MX yet. So in the end, you'll never really know if it went up or if that was what it was always going to be uh, sold at. So anyway, it was kind of, there's something to watch. Um, I'm trying to think what else. Uh, yeah, speaking to machines, so I know you, you've been doing some, uh, some playing around with uh, 3D printers lately, right? I have. Um, we, we've been playing around with the idea of some uh, new accessories for the Nomad, and uh, I got a chance to actually use an FDM printer for the first time. Uh, I've used like resin printers at work. We had an object, and I got to run that solo. Um, and that was cool and all, but it was like those kinds of tools are one step removed from what most mere mortals like get to play with. Uh, cause those machines are like tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars. And, uh, they've got an Ultimaker at the Carbide 3D, uh, shop and, uh, Rob just told me, go run with this idea. Um, just snag the SD card out of it and, uh, give it a shot. And so in the morning, I downloaded Cura and sliced my file. Um, basically just like figured it all out on my own. It's a, actually a really intuitive software. And um, I, I had a print done by lunchtime and I got to try it. I was like, all right, it needs a little tweak. And then before I left work, I, I popped out the SD card, loaded a new file, sent it back. And when I came back the uh, next day, I had the second version ready to go. And... It was kind of a, a paradigm shift for me because prior to this, I hadn't really tried to make a functional part on a printer like this. And I mean, you know in the back of your head, like, oh, it's good for making geometry. You really wouldn't want to work hold or figure out how to machine. Um, but it hadn't actually touched my life until that point. And that sort of just opened my eyes to the fact that maybe I shouldn't be such a subtractive elitist. I just had a, another friend come up with a idea for a project. He wants to make uh, shift paddle extensions for his uh, car. And that's it's kind of a curved semi-organic geometry that I, I wouldn't want a machine just for a test fit. So that's something I would model in Fusion and a, a really good candidate, I dare say, for 3D printing. So For the prototype? Not for the final part, right? Just to just for the check fit for the geometry and and make sure it actually works and that there are no weird gaps or I need to close up a tolerance or something. And I don't know. I I almost considered shopping for a three D printer, and I feel dirty saying that, but there 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 might be a day in in the intermediate future where a three D printer gets added to the machine shop of horrors. Wow. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm definitely a, a, an advocate for having, uh, you know, a 3d printer in the, in the, uh, traditional CNC workshop. Um, cause they're, they're very utilitarian, but very handy to have. Yeah. For the reasons you mentioned and, um, just a whole bunch of things. It's like for work holding there, sometimes that's like just the best route to go, right. For some part that just, Either it's too difficult to machine or, uh, or like I said, you want to try it out, make sure it fits first. Like I've done fixtures and 3D printed fixtures before I've machined them. Sometimes like the tombstone, right? That was a good example. I 
I, I printed that just to make sure um, I had enough clearance on the machine, on the pocket machine. You know, at all orientations, it wasn't going to collide or anything before I committed to getting that made in aluminum. Um, but I have some, you know, I have other fixtures that are used, you know, come out of the 3D printer and get used as the product or not production, but the final fixture right on the machine. And those have worked pretty good too. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't make any other than parts to make parts. I'm not really doing anything with a 3D printer. Oh, well, that's not quite true. I make some stuff for, for repairs around the house. Um, so I've done both machined and 3D printed, depending on what it is I'm trying to fix, like closet bracket or something, you know, like a shelf bracket or something like that. Um, stuff for my wife's aquarium yeah that stuff wouldn't do too well underwater right it still leaches out some some nasty stuff yeah so like for underwater stuff i would do probably delrin stuff that had to interact with salt water uh, i'm sure there's probably some P some plastics i i should mention i i only print in pla that's just kind of a limitation of the printer i have i don't run a heated bed so a lot of the more exotic or engineering appropriate materials aren't really an option for me and then if i ever get another printer i'll probably get something that can handle a broader range of materials, some of the nylons and stuff. Yeah. The other thing I found is like 3d printing is it's much slower than machining, assuming it's a basic shape, right? So there's the things that can, you can print that just would be really hard to machine. That's probably a win on the 3d printer, even in time. But like, um, that Delrin fixture I did recently, I originally was going to print it. And I was looking at, I think it was six and a half hours to print and I machined it in 40 minutes. So <laughs> that was an easy one, right? It was either print it in PLA uh, and, I, and I got it, you know, machined in Delrin, which was a better product than PLA for that application. Um, but, the, you know, there's other ones that a lot of times I'll start something, a fixture on the printer because I'm using the machines, the CNC machines for something else. It doesn't tie up the machine, right? Um, so, yeah, it's, it's good to have. I, it comes in handy. I, I, I would definitely miss it if, if it broke or I didn't uh, didn't have it working here. So it, it was weird because I you know I started with three D printing when I came came into the kind of maker maker activities right a couple of years ago uh, before I had my first CNC machine and kind of thought that was the direction I was going to go. Um, but once I got my CNC machines, I put that thing in the closet for like a year and a half. And just, you know, I got it out when I kind of re reorged my shop, I freed up some space, some table space and decided to bring it back out. And it's actually turned out, like I said, it's turned out to be really useful. Uh, I'm kind of glad it's, I dusted yeah, it off. Good complementary tool, but it's no replacement for subtractive. Yeah, well, it has, it's different, right? It has its different strengths. But um, so one of, the, one of the conversations I had last week was with Form Labs. So I was talking to a representative there, kind of follow up to uh, looking at their booth at AU and getting some information about the Form 2, which is a SLA printer, right? Uh, I've never done, I'm the opposite of you, I've done FDM and never done anything, any other process like SLA or, or um, SLS, which they have both. I think the Fuse one is SLS. Yeah, so the Form 2 is a SLA resin-based, right? UV light resin um, liquid, right? Basically liquid medium. Mm -hmm. And then the, the fuse one, which I'm still, even after I've talked to them, I'm unclear if that's like a shipping product today or if it's still like they're taking pre-orders and it's not ready to go yet, but it's a, a nylon based, uh, selective laser centering. So it starts from a, a powder, right. And then you end up with the hard 
you know, basically production quality part at the end of that process. But there are just so many processes now that are like blurring the line. Doesn't Mark Forge have one where you basically extrude like metal infused powder and then you can like heat treat that or something? I don't know about that. I know they have uh, they have carbon fiber reinforced. Um, actually, I think they can do like full carbon thread injected into the resin as it's printing or into the filament. It's like it's still FDM technology or something derived from it. Right. But it's much, much stronger product. Um, with that carbon fiber, like you can get PLA with carbon fiber <laughs> chunks, I guess, in there, you know, little, little chopped up pieces of carbon fiber. I don't know if that really helps at all, but, um, my understanding on the Mark Forge is actually, it's a continuous, it's inserting like a continuous, uh, carbon fiber thread along with the filament. I just looked it up. Um, it is a metal powder bound in a plastic matrix. Oh, wow. Okay. I didn't know they had that. Yeah. So then you just, I think you center that afterwards or something and uh, you have a metal part. Yeah. That sounds like um, the Formlabs uh, ceramic. So it works the same way. They have a ceramic uh, in their liquid resin line, right? You basically print it. It's ceramic, I guess, ceramic particles uh, emulsion right inside the, the, I'm not sure what the plastic chemistry is for the liquid, but it's in the resin and then you fire it in a kiln, the resin burns off and you end up with the ceramic part that kind of fuses together in the kiln and looks like a normal ceramic part when it comes out high temperature, like the regular materials, right? That you print on the SLA are going to melt, you know, plastic, right? They're going to melt at really elevated temperatures. But I thought that was kind of cool. You could actually have a part that could be like an electrode, uh, electrode mount or something like that, right? It's going to stand up to really high temperature coming off a, a 3D printer. That's pretty cool. That's a new new one to me. Uh, but yeah, so I'm looking, you know, I don't think uh, either one of those printers, like I don't see an application for me, at least not this year, to look at something like the Form 2. I think uh, uh, Chris Lee Designs on Instagram, Chris got a Form 1 or Form 2 recently. Um, I saw some stuff that he posted on it. So I'm kind of watching how his experience goes. Uh, but I think, you know, like FDM is kind of meeting my needs for supporting what I do in the shop as far as work holding. If I went to something like a Fuse or a, a Form 2, I think I would be doing like um, shippable parts on it. Does that make sense? Like, I, yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't use that for like utility printing. That to me looks like uh, the surface finish up coming off those things. The, yeah, especially the, the Form 2. I don't really know about the fuse, but the, um, it looks more like injection molded parts. It's nothing like FDM. It's a much nicer surface. It's probably machinable, unlike FDM, which would, you know, FDM's just a bunch of uh, like fibers slightly fused together. So if you start machining it, you just, it just kind of comes apart on you, right? Yeah, it's not a, what's the word? I think it's isentropic. Like the, the material behaves differently in different orientations. Uh, so you can't count on it to, uh, Oh yeah. Yeah. It's definitely it has stronger. It's stronger, uh, like against, I can't remember which way it works, but you know, it, the, it's weak across the layers, like the Z layers can come apart on you. Um, versus like, I think it's isotropic, not isentropic. Isentropic is entropy. I, yeah, I can't remember. I know the word, aren't you? <laughs> Not the same in, the, in all directions, right? Isotropic, having yeah. a physical property which is the same value when measured in different directions. And isotropic yeah. is what you're talking about. Yeah, machinability of the material, I think coming off something like a Form 2, 
you know, might be a possibility that would actually make it potentially more interesting to me. I could do like a near net shape. Um, cause I, I don't know, maybe like the precision coming off the FDM printers, at least the hobby ones, isn't anywhere near what I get off like CNC machined surface. Yeah, you could almost do a coarse thread. Yeah. Now or I think if you do a, a print a massive thread, it'll work, but yeah, I think the form two is considerably more accurate, uh, higher resolution, but I don't know if it's still like accurate enough to just, if you, you're trying to make a precision part, if it's going to be usable right off the machine, but if it's machinable, you know, you get to near net shape with, uh, coming off the printer and then just machine the critical surfaces that might actually be interesting. So I'll probably explore that some more next time I talk to them. Um, don't know if anyone, you know, and they're probably, I'm, if I had to guess, the answer is probably going to be some of our resins would be good for that. Some of them wouldn't. They have a pretty broad range of resins with different properties. But um, yeah, that might be of interest, actually, if it's machinable. I know you can uh, cast. Uh, they have some resins you can actually go cast, use it to make a mold, and then uh, uh, like burn it out like a castable wax, right? It's uh, big in the jewelry world. Um, but even though they say you can cast it some resins will burn off better than others and uh rio grande one of the jewelry companies that carbide 3d works with uh they have like some engineers who actually like verify for themselves and test um that they burn off cleanly and uh you can get a good uh cast out of them the representative at form lab she sent me two samples of basically their rings right jewelry items that are made in the castable resin they're basically ready to ready to go into the mold making process and the resolution on, I, I, like, I can tell these definitely are not FDM parts. Um, I was looking at them even under the microscope and it's, I cannot see like rastered lines or anything on them. It's pretty incredible. Uh, the resolution coming off that printer. That's actually, other than when I was at the show, that's the first time I've actually seen a part off the form two. Um, so. I'm, I'm gonna, I want to see what Chris says. You know, if these are just like magic parts, <laughs> the, the per, you know, everything makes them perfect. Uh, but I want to see kind of how they do a more general use. Um, so anyway, yeah, I'm kind of keeping an eye on that. I may add more additive capacity here this year. Probably not. I'm really more focused on a potentially larger, larger uh, CNC machine to complement what I have here. But it, it's interesting, and I'm. I'm uh, kind of fascinated by, fascinated by your perspective coming from the opposite way from I did, right? Because I, I started with 3D printing. It was easy to me, right? Which I think is a good thing to bring people that don't know anything about engineering or making or whatever. I think, you know, especially now the 3D printers are pretty reliable, pretty affordable, and pretty easy to use, right? To master, I don't want to say master, but to, to get uh, to the point where you're, plugging in and getting parts, right? Um, if I printed something out with zero instruction, like it's pretty friendly. Yeah, process reliability of them. That's probably the biggest improvement they made over the last three years, that and you know the price coming down. But, um, you know, and then when I went to CNC machines, uh, the process of going from model part to finished part was, you know, it's a lot more complexity, right? Uh, and the software side and coming up with the tool paths and everything. So you, yeah, when you kind of, you said you, you were using Cura as your slicer, right? So it's like, it's literally the one click and it prints, right? Mm -hmm. Like your work holding in 3D printing is basically, does your print adhere to the bed? Yes or no? 
machinists think about fixturing, right? And, and uh, 3D printing guys think about uh, first layer bed adhesion and orientation, overhang, all that stuff, right? Um, and then like on the form, the form two printing and liquid, it's even, you know, it's even different, right? So they kind of orient their part with a little bit of a, a slope and they, you know, they, they're more concerned about gravity and sag, right? And I think also suction because the way they, uh, peel the print, um, off the, the, the tray where they shine the laser through, um, if you have a really large flat area, it creates a large vacuum. Um, so they have you orient your part. Uh, just off horizontal so that you don't have a large flat surface uh, being pulled off every time. Yeah, I think they want you like each layer to have as little contact or surface area, right, as possible. Um, yeah, I think that's why it looks like it's, it's usually like, looks like it's at 30 or 45 degrees um, as it comes out of the tank. So yeah, there's all, you know, I think, I guess each of these processes have its, has its nuances, right, that you have to, um, you know, the first the simple parts are easy. The more complex stuff requires you to kind of dig into all the little things that can go wrong, right? Um, but yeah, I think three um, D printing does have the ease and and quick success going for it. I think you know to get people interested in digital fabrication. So I'm I'm a advocate for it. I don't necessarily say stop there, right? That's that's that that would have been a mistake for me. Is just, you know stay in the three D printing world. Um, I get really excited when I see someone that's like big on 3d printing and said, you know, maybe has a big Instagram following, uh, based on their 3d printing, uh, activity. Uh, when they come ask about the CNC machines and I see one basically show up there and kind of watching them go through that, you know, it's exciting because I know kind of what they're going through and I know how, how good they're going to feel when they get that first part off that CNC machine. Right. And it comes out the way they want. You know, I, I was kind of talking about at the beginning of the show, my, uh, the commercial, a little bit, of, you know, the small commercial activity I have going on in my workshop. Um, how about you? Are you, you've been doing any, uh, anything other than the kind of carbide tutorial related work? Um, I've got so many, uh, irons and so many different fires that like last week I was a little, I don't know. I, I sort of had decision paralysis about what I would do. Um, just because, a lot of things seem to be falling into place. Um, like doing a little bit of like finally some R and D for like carbide 3d. Um, I may have an international collaboration happening. Um, I'm finally in a shop space with an operational shape. Oko, so I can start tackling some of the, uh, the projects I've had banked up. Um, I've got deadlines coming up for, uh, projects and tie-ins to certain uh, trips and conventions and stuff. Uh, I wanted to make uh, business cards for WorkbenchCon, so I just ordered some uh, laser engravable aluminum business cards. Um, they're either like powder coated or black anodized, and I was going to use the drag knife to try and engrave. Um, and then I need to make a jewelry project um, for uh, a convention in New York, and. I've also got just, um, I was hoping to meet up with, uh, Daytron Dan next week, which means I, I kind of want to get some, uh, some two millimeter, three millimeter single flute testing going on just so I can sort of chat with him about my results. My to-do list has just started filling up 
so quickly that I don't really know what to do with myself. Uh, which I guess is a good thing, but sometimes it can be a little overwhelming. Yeah, I, I was kind of feeling the same way. I had, um, you know, I was really excited to get like these gear parts, but it's definitely the biggest job I've taken on uh, commercially, right, since I started being open to some commission work. Less stress now that it's done. <laughs> but uh, but I have, you know, I have other things that were kind of, um, the, the good thing is I, I kind of set aside enough time to develop the initial process for this. So I was kind of slow, slow to take on other work. I kind of blocked out a few weeks to just make sure I didn't have stuff stacking up and people, you know, waiting for parts that they were expecting earlier. So, which is really smart because I know I would have, uh, underestimated the amount of time that I would sink into the project. Yeah. yeah I actually learned that on a couple of previous commercial projects that took, you know, fortunately I didn't have anyone waiting, but they took, you know, I kind of have a rule of thumb. It's like the Grimsmo's rule of thumb, right? Everything takes 3.14. <laughs> it takes pi, pi times what you think it's going to take. But um, that seems to be holding pretty true here. Um, but yeah, so I'd kind of put off. I had some other uh, clients that had some work for me that kind of pushed off until February. But now it's February and all that stuff's, uh, you know, I got to start kind of reengaging with that. Uh, it's all small scale, nothing like the gear parts. It's all back my traditional prototyping, right? So one part, maybe five, up to five parts. Um, but a couple of them are going to be pretty pretty tough they're all back on the the stuff will all be on the um the five axis machine the pocket and so i gotta get that done uh that'll probably be i'll probably get like a week where i don't have to start on those because uh, there's basically i'll go back to them now and say yeah um i'm able to commit to that time now so i have to wait for them to send a po and everything but it probably gives me like a week to crank out some of my own projects so I'm, I'm just starting to think about what I want to do this week. I, I've been thinking too much about everything I want to do. <laughs> yeah. So like w one big thing, I, I've been playing around with a couple of ideas. Um, you probably remember Bantam Tools sent me uh, uh, their latest machine like right around Christmas. So it was like really nice gift from them. Um, and I want to kind of make something on it that's uh, a way of saying thank you. So, you know, something kind of custom for them. Um, I started on one, one project and I didn't really like where it was going. So I'm kind of back to the drawing board, but I think, uh, I'll be able to hopefully finish that this week. Get that. Was it not a spinner? No, not a spinner. <laughs> so yeah. So Carbide's getting a spinner. So George, uh, at Carbide 3D had asked for a spinner back at AU and I was waiting for the Nomad to get back, uh, and be working correctly. Cause I want to make, normally I kind of spread the parts across the Bantam machine and the, and the Nomad when I was making them for you know, production for sale, but, um, but I can make all the parts on any of the machines. Like I have the cam in case something went wrong, right. Or a machine broke or I needed for something else. I could move all the stuff to any of the other machines. So I have like a nomad only version of the machining for the spinner and I'll run that and I give him a hundred percent nomad produced uh, spinner to put in their little part showcase there. Uh, so that probably, I don't think I can start that till March. Um, I need to do a little bit more testing with the Nomad, make sure it's behaving the way I, I want it to. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I did a little bit of machining. It looks good so far. I just haven't had to really, I haven't had a chance to like go create a, a part and go and measure it and make sure it's accurate. Um, I'm pretty sure it is. I don't have any reason to think it's not, but, uh, the only thing I've done on it so far is cut some stock up, um, kind of trimmed out a square out of some stock. And that worked fine. So uh, I know it's I know it's cutting fine. I just want to make sure the accuracy is uh, where I need it to be because the spinners are um, 
I will run into trouble if there if there's any kind of issues with that. So some pretty tight tolerances. On. I, f- I forgot you you go for like press fit basically. So if it's out by a thou, that's that's not good. The bearing hole is probably the most sensitive. Uh, if it's like, I mean, I, I highly doubt I'm getting like perfectly round holes on these machines, but um, but it has to like if there's any variation in it, the bearing is either going to bind or it's going to uh, be too loose, right? And because I, I use a uh, Loctite to lock it in there, but I can only put a very small amount on there. Or it'll end up because the bearings are so small, right? They'll um, they'll end up with that goop in the bearing, and it ru- it ruins it. So, and the bearings are like seventy bucks. So Holy cow. <laughs> I don't mess up a bearing. Yeah, they're like one hundred percent ceramic. So um, anyway, so I got to run a couple of tests on that, and then hopefully get his part out to him or his uh, spinner out to him. Um. I will say that I made a run to Industrial Pipe and Steel in El Monte, California, and that place is wonderful. Um, they, they sell all sorts of metal, and they have like three like pallets worth of just drops and oh, small man. offcuts. <laughs> and I, I picked up eight pounds of aluminum for like twenty bucks. Um, it's stock that I'm going to run on the Pocket NC, and also just. I don't know. It feels nice having an easy source of just aluminum that I can play with. Um, and then, like, on the way back, I stopped over at J.P.L. Richards' house, picks up, picked up some micrometers that he had set aside for me, and then I went to McMaster, and it, it just, it was a glorious day. And for all the flack I give L.A. for having the worst traffic, um, being in a city like this and having these, these, institutions where i can just go and pick up whatever i need whenever i want um is also just a fantastic resource so it's it's a bit of a trade-off from a quality of life cost of living perspective but like this is exactly like why you would consider moving here if you're big on like manufacturing and industrial services just having all it at your fingertips it's a maker's mecca right (laughs) It, it really is. And like so many uh, makers have like reached out to me just in the LA area um, just to like meet up, hang out, whatever. And having that number of people here, that critical mass of, of intellect is, is pretty cool. And I, I actually had lunch today with uh, the aforementioned Chris Lee and uh, he's a cool guy and his, his story is awesome and we should get him on a podcast. Yeah. I think that'd be a great idea. Um, you know, he and I talked, quite a bit, uh, or I, I should say text, right? And, um, you know, he's, he's been really great. He helped me with some of the fixture, some of the bigger machining tasks that I couldn't handle on the small machines here. He did some really good work for me. And, uh, yeah, he's, he'd be an interesting guy to collaborate with sometime on, on the, some, some, well, for me, it's work holding, right? It's what I like. And he, I think he has a similar passion for that stuff. Um, but yeah, I'm really looking forward to hearing his story and sharing it with our our uh, audience that'd be great yeah he's he's like a self-taught success story and uh you mentioned you're gonna run into uh dan de is that what show is that that you're going to uh mdnm uh it's a medical supply and tool trade show or something okay yeah so dan's dan is like my hero as of this weekend, <laughs> I don't know if you, if you saw my Instagram post, I think it was on Saturday that I, it's IGS Dan on, on Instagram. He's 
pretty uh, he works for Daytron, but he's he's uh, pretty famous for his uh, longboards, his Daytron CNC machine longboards. Um, I think Grim, which I totally want to steal that idea. Yeah, he, we'll talk about that later. You need a big machine. <laughs> well, you, I guess the Shape Oko that's big enough to do that. The XL will will do yeah. it. Um, but he um, and I've got unlimited access to stock. So he, yeah, so he, I don't know if you saw uh, on his Instagram, I think it was probably around Christmas time or a little bit, or maybe even been before you, but he, he took uh, a longboard and get, uh, went and visited John Grimsmo because um, he owns uh, one of Grimsmo's uh, creations. He owns a Norseman, pretty early model, um, I think sub thousand serial number. So he's had it for a while and I think he, you know, he uses it, which is the right way to, to, to deal with the Grimsmo knife, right? I'll just put it away in a showcase. So he used it, and I think he did a little bit of damage to the blade. So he, he actually took it there um, when he went to give him the longboard, and and uh, I think Eric like personally repaired it for him, reground the blade for him. So he's pretty attached to that Norseman, but he stayed on the uh, on the maker's choice list for, uh, which is the only way to get a uh, like a new Norseman from John Grimsmo. Um, sorry, you have to get kind of picked at random, right? And then you get a chance to buy whatever he's offering for sale that day and he i actually had no idea how that worked until recently when i was listening to their podcast yeah yeah because he doesn't take orders right uh, he used to like he used to do custom orders and um, when he did his first kickstarter but now it's um you know they make whatever they feel like making and then they put them up for sale and they have like a wait list you just get picked at random off the wait list and you get an email that says you know you have i think 24 hours to say yay or nay on this you know this particular knife with the picture of it and so um, if you say no, then it basically goes and re- redraws right another random name, and you stay on the list, right? In case you know, maybe you just didn't like that particular style or that color or whatever. Um, and that actually happened to me back in 2017. I um, I got selected for a maker's choice, and I really liked the knife, but it had a, a acid etched blade, which I don't like. I really like kind of a brighter blade, and uh, it was hard, but I said no, <laughs> and <laughs> regretted that ever since because I really want a Norseman. And, um, so anyway, long story short, Dan, uh, got reselected for a, a second Norseman this weekend. And, you know, he, he had to deliberate about it a little bit, I think. And, you know, he was, you know, thinking about maybe do I sell the first one. I don't, you know, it seemed like having two would be kind of overkill, but, but ultimately he decided to keep his original because of the kind of personal story that goes with that one. And he offered me very generously offered me the opportunity to purchase the, the one, the new one, right. That was offered to him this weekend. So I said, uh, yeah, <laughs> pulled the trigger on that. So I'm now a Norseman owner or will be as soon as it gets here, right. Get to customs and everything. So I'm really excited about that. Uh, big thing. What are the, what are the particulars about this knife? Uh, a it's made by John Grimsmo. Do you need more? Well, Do you need more? <laughs> no, no, it's actually, it's beautiful. It's, um, so it has the, the blue anodized honeycomb pattern, which I really like actually reversed honeycomb. Um, and, Gold is kind of the secondary color, and it has the gold uh, uh, hardware. So the the pivots and the I'm sorry, not the pivots, the spacers and the the thumb catch, thumb release are all gold. So I think he typically does gold brass, or I guess they're really probably brass, right? Um, or uh, blue anodized titanium, I think, or silver, right? Those are the three the three colors I've seen on the the thumb catch and and uh, some of the screws and stuff. 
So it's really good. It's actually, if you've seen the shirt, if you've seen the full Grimsmo t-shirt that he sells, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then that knife is exactly what mine looks like. It's like the one on the shirt. Because uh-huh. he has lots of different patterns. Like that was just one out of hundreds, <laughs> probably different variations he has. And mine just happened to match that. So I'm pretty excited about that. Um, yeah, I didn't even notice that until Dan mentioned it's a good, because it's a good match for the shirt. And I'm like, I was thinking DFX shirt. <laughs> so I, I, I'm trying to trying to get where you're going, but uh, then he said, "No, the, the Grimsaw shirt." It's like, I had to go pull it out, and it's like, "Oh my gosh, yeah, it's exactly the same." And uh, so that's cool. And I can't wait till it gets here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's my late Christmas present to myself. But uh, thanks, Dan, for giving me that opportunity. Um, there's probably got like ten other friends that are no longer your friend because <laughs> you didn't call them first, but, uh, haha. <laughs> too bad for them. Um, anyway, so yeah, that was my one little exciting thing this weekend. Yeah. More exciting than the Super Bowl for me. <laughs> <laughs> you ever pick up maker like, gear from other makers? I, I think I've seen a couple of things. So I signed up to buy the, um, the maker knife by, uh, Jacques. Oh, yeah. I saw that. And, um, the, the early orders have been coming in. I bought in pretty late on the Kickstarter, so I expect to be at the tail end of it. Um, but I just heard, like, so that the, the Black Edition, the Rust Edition, those have gone out. But the the silver ones, um, they went through some some production issues. They didn't like the original anodized. I suspect it was a Type 2. And he said he he went with a, a thicker, stronger anodizing, so I'm suspecting that's a Type 3 hard anodize. And so that gives you that, like, nice gray look. And so... The, the silver ones um, got delayed because of that production change. And I, I've been keeping tabs on the Kickstarter and the updates, and they should have started shipping last week. So I'm hoping to see a tracking number this week. And I'm really excited to take it apart and just understand that mechanism. Um, I don't know how delicate it is or, or how tight the tolerances are for it, but I know there are like set screws where you can adjust like the pressure you need to like release the knife and, and latch and unlatch it. Um, but like Jaco mentioned like different processes like EDM and all that stuff. And I was, I was just wondering, I, I really want to know how this thing was manufactured. I, I just want to take it apart and understand it because it's, it's a cool story, right? You come up with an idea, uh, you put your own twist on it, like a utility knife that takes like, like standard like stanley blades and i don't know you just you execute it in a way that's uh, i wouldn't say elegant but it's more like a a utilitarian practical like boxy body um with a a cool little feature so uh one of the first things i'm gonna do is take it apart yeah i was gonna say a utility with aesthetics right that's kind of the maker thing right you know ideally or to me that's what the, the kind of stuff i really like is either useful but looks great made with with a lot of skill or uh something unique about it right or i mean some of the things i buy like i bought spinners really serve no purpose <laughs> but they're <laughs> you know, they're attractive right or they're interesting art either interesting form or uh finish or something you know, or material right that's usually what kind of attracts me to the few spinners i have here uh, that i didn't make um but yeah like the utility knives the key holders all those kind of things I think it's pretty cool community out there that's doing stuff that's uh, functional, I guess, right? Functional, but but uh, not store bought, right? So it's 
Uh, and there's not that many of them out there. I don't know how many maker knives you're making. Uh, that was a Kickstarter, right? So probably quite a few, but but not Walmart numbers. Definitely into the hundreds. Yeah, yeah. Um, hundreds is not a lot, right? Um, I mean, it's unique, right? Actually, you're, it's probably thousands. Yeah. I don't know 10,000s, but it's thousands. Yeah. I mean, unless you're at like a maker fair or something, you're uh, or hanging out like at a meetup, you're not not likely to run into a second one, right? With someone carrying a mm-hmm. Of course, the, the demographic that I hang out with, there's a good chance that I'll run into, run into someone else who has one. Everyone will have one, yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I, uh, I've been watching that a little bit. Uh, I've actually, Rob, you know, well, you know Rob Austin Lockwood, right? So he's he has a utility knife that uh, he makes on and off, and I don't, I don't know if he's making any right now. As a matter of fact, that's kind of a little thread on, <laughs> I think on his Instagram page. Um you know, thinking about getting back into production on it, but uh, same kind of thing, right? It takes these commodity utility blade. Uh, I think it does anyway. Um, but has really nice, uh, holder for it. Right. Um, it's a pretty basic design, but it works and it's, you know, it's pretty, it looks good just sitting on the desk. So that's kind of, that might be my next edition after the, after the Norseman. Cause I, you know, someone was already asking, are you going to use it to open boxes? And I'm like, well, John makes these knives to be used, so I'm not going to like baby it, but there's going to be times when I'll, I think I'd rather have like the X-Acto blade <laughs> that I can just break off and <laughs> throw away, right, for some some tasks. So Like make sure you don't actually hit one of those like copper staples or something. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I'm, there's there's room in my uh, tool chest for, for more of a uh, abusable blade, I think. So that's cool. I'm looking forward to seeing that when you get it in. Yeah, it should be a good piece. I'm like debating whether or not I want to customize it at all. Um, I don't know how well the hard anodized would react to a uh, drag engraving tool. Because um, I've seen some people like laser the black ones and put like a honeycomb pattern on it, almost like Grimsma style. Um, but I don't think I'd want to do that. Instead, I'd maybe try and uh, like put my own logo on it or something. Uh, but I got to. I have to do some thinking as to whether or not I want to customize this and make it my own. Yeah. I mean, a diamond, a uh, drag knife. I don't know how well that would work. Good. The the diamond tip drag engraving. Tool. Yeah. That should work. Cause I mean, it's aluminum oxide, right? So it's like, yeah, it's, but it, I don't know how much contrast there's going to be. <laughs> oh, the I thought you were worrying about ruining the tool, but yeah, I see what you're saying. It's pretty deep. Um, you'd have to go, especially if it's hard anodized, you'd have to go pretty deep to get to, you know, pure metal right to get down to the aluminum yeah because it's, it's more than more than a couple tenths of thickness like there's actual substance there that you have to break through it's not like the color anodizing it's tough stuff um but i know it can be done i mean i see gun well no i take that back those are probably caracoded uh, as uh, i don't know i've seen uh, i've seen engraving on like uh black rifles right um this done with the actually that probably was anodized they're doing it with the diamond drag knives or drag uh drag tool but with those colors you get better contrast so all right well we're at an hour i think um yep probably about 57 by the time you edit yeah. this uh i don't know if you had any uh any other things you wanted to share so are you going anywhere in february uh that's workbench con that's what i need to figure out business cards for um, that's in Atlanta. It is. Um, I, I need to figure out where we're staying because our Airbnb, uh, my coworker and I, or splitting one, uh, just canceled on us on short notice, which is kind of a bummer. Um, 
but that means they're banned from being a super host for the next year, so I guess that that's their loss. Anyway, um, not that this is like an open call for like, hey, who has a bed, but um, we're going down there, uh, we'll figure out where we're staying, and I think it'll just be cool to hang out with some of the, the makers there and see how they've come along. Because I know there's a couple I've been talking to who just in the past year have uh, purchased a CNC. So there's more people joining the subtractive family, and I'm curious to swap stories with them and and just hear how they're getting along and what projects they're coming up with and seeing like how much this technology has sort of rocked the boat in the maker world. Yeah, is that the kind? Of, is that conference like one that you come back really pumped up to do something in your shop? Kind of, kind of. Yeah. the The whole point is, uh, it's sort of like a, a marketing type conference where it's like teaching you like. Uh, the right things to do on social media and like how to approach sponsors and, and stuff like that. But because of the crowd you're in, like you're probably going to be among like people you look up to who make awesome stuff that like you really respect. And just being in that space and talking with other like-minded people. Uh, last year I came away just like by the time the, the conference was wrapping up, I was like, all right, all right, like, hurry up. Like, I need to catch my flight so I can go home and, like, get back in the shop and start making stuff. Um, that that kind of pumping up vibe is uh, what it's all about. Yeah, that's how I came back from AU with that same feeling. Um, you know, head so stuff full of great ideas, right, that you pick up there. Um, they're still paying off, right, especially the fusion stuff. I mean, the, the little tips. <laughs> it's like big productivity changes. Um, so like, I'm trying to, you have to kind of be disciplined about that to reinforce, right. Use them. Um, if it's a hot key, right. You have to kind of remember to use it and to get it kind of until it becomes muscle memory, right. To really pick up the productivity game. So I've been doing like little exercises to kind of, um, like I wrote down like my five top favorite things I saw there as far as the little tips and, uh, I go back and I look at my Trello notes and it's like, are you using it? If you're not using it, <laughs> it's like you need to put a little post-it note or something to remind yourself about it. Um, so yeah, those, those, I have like two of them. Like one of them had to do with the way that like sketching, right? The, most of the stuff I really liked was the productivity tips and sketching because I do a lot of sketching. So uh, that was a big help. Um, but yeah, like Workbench Con, I always like, is it, maker focus or is it anyone this i mean i'd like the, those it's it's specifically maker focus so the brands that show up there like home depot is one of the big sponsors um last year there was like craig jig and ryobi and um it, it it's all companies that are focused around the diy space okay so it's not like the make the the ladies or the the people have the like the makeup channels and stuff it's not that crowd no okay no no that that's a, a different conference yeah, got you. <laughs> those they have some huge followings <laughs> they do but it, it just like at the end of the day like are you better off for knowing that information i don't know i'm coming at this from an outside perspective with like zero interest in that so i can't speak for everyone else but that's it's one of those categories that i see like youtube shifting to like there's just been a lot of people who have gone in the way of like doing YouTube challenges and vlogs and and things that I don't feel add value to me. So I've unsubscribed from a couple people I've been subscribed to for years just because they're going in a direction that's like that that seems more like pop culture than what I signed up for. That's a whole episode all by itself. We'll 
we'll come back to yeah, this one. We should, I, I, we should step away from that for no, now. No, yeah, but I'm saying that that would be a good one to talk about because um, I know exactly what you're talking about. And I kind of see, I mean, I know you get some, like, I don't have any official sponsors or anything, right? But I do get, uh, like, I get some support with what I do, um, Carbide 3D and actually all of them, um, Bucket and C, right? They've often supplied me with uh, tooling or uh, materials, right, to do specific projects or just to do some testing, right, and, and share it. But, you know, it's kind of the, uh, I hate that word influencer, but, right, it's some of the benefits of working with their equipment and showing what it can do, right? So it gets, you know, it gets audience attention, but it also gets the manufacturer's attention, right? So they're usually, they're very, uh, very supportive of what I do. I'm sure they are of what you do, too. I have a certain philosophy about how far I would go with that, like, I think yours, you might be a little different. Um, I, I don't know if I'm the most, like, well, I, I know I'm not remotely qualified to talk about it, but I have had um, an official sponsor. And, uh, I mean, it's it's an interesting relationship you have to build. Um, but just as as a matter of principle and as a matter of, like, avoiding putting myself in a situation where I have to talk up what I bring to the table... I just, I don't go out and seek these things. I let them come to me. That's what worries me. I mean, as long as there's kind of well-defined parameters on both sides of the, you know, a relationship like that around what they can expect from you and what what you're willing to do for them, right? Um, With most of the big companies that have been doing this for a while, it's pretty safe. Like the terms of their contract have, have gone through multiple revisions and like, multiple people have gone through the process before you it's like small companies that it's like their first time diving into this world or they're they're trying to uh sort of seek makers outside of the traditional fold um where where you have to be a little more careful i think yeah i was thinking about that recently and that's what kind of set me off <laughs> uh so let's get back um, we can we can put that little uh aside as a uh patron feature for whenever we have a patreon <laughs> once in new york <laughs> <laughs> no actually i was i was thinking it's actually someone else's on my mind I'll, I'll tell you offline but um oh yeah so uh workbench content you mentioned the, the the i guess the medical show in la right there's probably gonna be some pretty good yeah, it's uh medical um design and manufacturing Okay, yeah. So that's like to me, medical and aerospace are kind of doing some of the most interesting, or I should say, some of the most interesting machining I see going on is uh, in those spaces, right? The parts, the challenges of the parts. Um, yeah, so that should be pretty good if you're, uh, especially if they have like you know some live machines running there. Um, hopefully, it's not all like software and <laughs> software and uniforms, right? Um, yeah, so that'd be kind of cool. Um, so say hi to Dan. I know he's going to be there. Um, and I, I have uh, some traveling at the end of February, um, which I'll talk about in the next episode. I think we have one more episode before I do my trip. Oh, that travel. Yes. yes I'm excited to for for that to bear fruit. Yeah, it's going to be good. Um, I don't want to I don't want to talk about the details until the next episode because there's still some. Um, I just want to make sure I know what I can talk about, <laughs> make sure it's correct accurate make sure they survive the polar vortex <laughs> yeah exactly um so yeah i think uh why don't we call that a wrap and um i'll get to editing this and try to get it out on a timely manner this week
Sounds good, Eddie. All right, Winston, I enjoyed talking to you as always. I uh, hope you have a good week, good productive week, and um, talk to you next time. Sounds good. You uh, stay productive in your shop too. Thanks. Good night. Bye.